please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hi, everyone. Uh, really happy and excited about our fourth episode of Algae Talk. This is uh, Jerry Lee. I am an assistant professor at Emory University and an assistant editor of Algae Watch. And I'd like to introduce uh, our co-host, Dr. Stan Feynman, the editor-in-chief of Algae Watch. Well, thanks, Jerry. And it's good to be here. Uh, you know, I'm uh, past president of the college and I'm in private practice uh, here in Atlanta. So. And our other co-host is Dr. Marin Kalangaro. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Marin, and I am an assistant professor at Emory University. So for this fourth episode, we'll be reviewing the July-August 2019 issue. But before we get started, Marin, I remember you told me a vignette that you recently gave a talk and got recognition from the podcast? That is correct. So I was at the Alabama State Meeting last week, and was actually told that a couple of people recognized my name on the program from the podcast. How do you feel about that versus your publication record? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's actually exciting that people are listening to it more, and I was excited that our podcast actually got a plug in this meeting as well. It's a so. beautiful thing, yes. <laughs> every advertising help and everything on your CV helps, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think another thing I wanted to... Uh, talk about was this the next issue of Algae Watch, and so Stan, I think we have a special issue coming up for Algae Watch. Right, this would be the uh, MOC Maintenance of Certification Cap Article Review um, <clears throat> issue, and we do that twice a year. Uh, the last one we did was uh, the January issue, and um, basically we take the articles that are recommended by the uh, ABAI. And uh, we review them the same way we do these, and uh, we, you know, publish an allergy watch, and hopefully it will help our members when they are studying for the, um, you know, the MOC, the the exam that they have to do before the end of the year. And in addition to the allergy watch issue, as always, the college will take its turn doing a cap review during the annual meeting. Uh, this year, and I was very fortunate to, to be invited to review some of the articles. So I think the college has uh, your upcoming episode and the annual meeting as multiple educational opportunities to meet the needs of allergists in their recertification. Right. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, I've used Allergy Watch cap review when I've been studying for my tests. So uh, and I find it very useful. So I hopefully other people have as well. Okay, well, again, uh, I think we should just get started. I, we have a lot of really interesting articles in this issue of Algae Watch, so let's start with Dr. Feynman. So the article that uh, we're going to discuss first <clears throat> is from the, uh, is, it was reviewed initially by uh, uh, John Oppenheimer, um, and the uh, uh, title of the article is Dupilumab Reduces Local Type 2 Pro-Inflammatory Biomarkers in Chronic Sinusitis with nasal polyps. And it's an interesting article. Uh, I found it interesting because what it did is looks at the local effects, uh, the local inflammatory biomarkers uh, that were impacted by the use of dupilumab in patients who had chronic, uh, chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. So this was a, a subset study really 
as part of a larger study that uh, really got the uh, uh, dupilumab approved for the use of nasal polyps. But these are a subset where they looked at the uh, secretions and also uh, biopsy tissue from nasal polyps in patients who were, uh, who were in the study. So what they did is, um, you know, as part of a background, uh, we do know that the um, TH1 and TH2 uh, pathways are uh, very important in chronic rhinosinusitis. The, uh, the, the patients who have chronic rhinosinusitis without nasal polyps generally have more neutrophilic disease and generally have type 1, uh, TH1 type uh, cytokines, whereas the patients who have chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps tend to have a type 2 uh, mediated uh, uh, inflammation, and uh, that means there's higher concentrations of uh, various eosinophil products, such as eosinophil cate cationic protein, ECP, also eotaxins, uh, IgE, uh, IL-4, even IL-5 and IL-13. Anyway, those is, is sort of a background. That's what you see in patients who have chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. So this was a, a study that was randomized. It was double-blinded. And um, the, the intervention, and the patients were between 18 and 65 years of age. They had to have bilateral nasal polyps and chronic sinusitis in spite of treatment with steroids. So, uh, and then one of the things they did was uh, look at the uh, endoscopic nasal polyp scores uh, to make sure that they qualified uh, for this study. So the treatment was um, nasal steroid, they used mometasone, and that was a four week run in, and then the intervention was using the uh, dupilumab, uh, which is given um, uh, by injection subcutaneously every two weeks. So the outcomes of the study were the topical levels of the various cytokines as well as nasal tissue samples. So the nasal secretions were collected from the 60 patients, 30 who had placebo, 30 who had dupilumab. Uh, this was all done in outpatient clinics. Also, nasal polyp biopsies were done, and uh, the tissue was um, analyzed for a variety of, of, uh, uh, of things that we'll talk about in just a minute. So they did measure the cytokines, and basically the results was very interesting because uh, in the secretions, the dupilumab treatment was associated with an overall reduction of nasal secretions with eotaxin-3, even total IgE, ECP, eosinophil cationic protein. And when you look at the slides, uh, look at the graphs, rather, in the study, you could see that ECP at the end of the 16 weeks uh, was not that clinically significant, but there was a difference that was dramatic, but the eotaxin-3 and the total IgE were uh, statistically significant. And if, and if you look at the graphs, uh, the impact really changed after eight weeks of treatment. So I think that's important because if we have patients who are getting uh, dupilumab treatment, you know, they're gonna, they might say, well, how long is it gonna take to uh, see any benefit? It looked like the, uh, there was significant changes in the um, cytokines at the uh, eight-week treatment mark. Um, in terms of the uh, uh, biomarkers for the biopsies, uh, that was a little more uh, challenging. Um, the uh, total IgE uh, didn't reach, uh, uh, let's see, the, the total IgE was measured. That seemed to help. Uh, the ECP did not change that much. Eotaxin did. Uh, eotaxin-3 also did, and uh, 
PARC seemed to do it, but not IL-13. Overall, the effects of the dupilumab biomarkers were consistent with the way dupilumab works, which is a blockade of the IL-4 receptor A, and also it blocks IL-13, and uh, indicates that it had a significant anti-inflammatory impact, uh, uh, you know, in the secretions and in the biopsies. And so I, I think that's kind of interesting in that we're trying to understand how does this, um, you know, work? How, do we, uh, how does it work in terms of we know that it seems to help patients with nasal polyps. It's been approved by the FDA for use with nasal polyps as a, as in addition to approved for uh, uh, asthma and uh, also uh, atopic dermatitis. And so this sort of gives us an insight into how it works for nasal polyps, and that's the reason I thought it was an interesting article to bring up and an interesting article to discuss. You know, when you show me some of those biomarkers, you know, what leaps off for me, the, the page for me is eotaxin 3, which I associate with eosinophilic esophagitis as well. You know, that key chemokine, mm -hmm. that's the breadcrumbs for eosinophils to traffic the esophagus. I, I have to admit, I'm not the first one to be familiar with research studies. Uh, I wasn't sure w where uh, they were with eosinophilic esophagitis. Classically, I know that's been difficult because previous studies that have looked at eosinophilic esophagitis, there wasn't really good patient-reported re outcomes. Mm -hmm. So what had happened was everyone got better, and you really couldn't show a significant difference if everyone felt great on the treatment. See, that's interesting because the initial study that was uh, done by really the same group uh, that was published in JAMA uh, a few years ago uh, that did show uh, improvement in nasal polyps with... Uh, uh, dupilumab use did look at uh, eosinophil, blood eosinophil. So they looked at blood eosinophils, plasma eotaxin 3, and total IgE, and also uh, TARC, you know, the serum thymus and activation regulated cytokine uh, chemokine. So what they found was that the serum IgE did change with the treatment. Um, the eotaxin 3 also mm -hmm. changed with the, the dupilumab treatment. Of course, the polyps got. Uh, smaller, but bloody eosinophils didn't change at all. Hmm. So that was after six weeks of treatment with dupilumab. Mm -hmm. And so I've read this paper when it first came out, and I think I remember reading that in the discussion, the authors postulated that local decreases in eotaxin 3 could possibly explain this dupilumab-induced hypereosinophilia in the first few weeks of therapy. And I think that is how they're explaining the lack of change in bloody eosinophil counts, um, especially in conjunction with the observed decrease in eosinophil cationic protein levels. But I just don't know how much I buy that because personally I've had a couple of patients with dupilumab-induced hypereosinophilia occurring in the first few weeks after therapy, and they've had pretty florid radiographic infiltrates that I have to assume is eosinophilic. Oh goodness! Interesting. Wow, mm -hmm. that's different. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know. I guess you're using it for asthma in those patients. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, you know, I don't have that much experience with it. You know, with asthma, I have a few patients who get it. I've had some patients with uh, nasal polyps right. who've had dramatic improvement. Oh, right. with the dupilumab. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. I mean, I had a patient just two days ago who came in. Uh, and she was one of the first patients who I even desensitized to aspirin. So she was a classic mm -hmm. aspirin-sensitive, nasal polyps, asthma, Samter's triad-type patient. Um, and she says, this is the first time I've been able to smell. 
So right. she uh, <laughs> really is turned around dramatically. So that was my other issue with this paper, as, as well as the original like pilot study that was published in JAMA. So these patients were not stratified according to the underlying etiology of nasal polyps. And so my issue with this was that the traditional barometers that are used to associate patients with classic chronic sinusitis and nasal polyps like eosinophils and high IgE are just sort of the culmination for several very diverse inflammatory phenotypes. And so just based on these papers, I don't really know what clinical phenotypes were represented in this group and how different patients may respond to dupilumab. That's a real, that's a, a, a limitation of the study. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was, you know, the, we don't have all that information. Uh, we don't have allergy skin testing. We don't know their sensitivities. Right. They measure total IgE, which, you know, but uh, yeah, that's a, a serious limitation. And also it was not a, uh, it, it was a, mostly a white population and, you know, there, it wasn't diverse. So mm -hmm. that's probably has a limitation as well. Right. So we just don't know the molecular profiles of these patients because right. they all come in with eosinophils and high IgE. Yeah, I certainly would love to have more information mm -hmm. other than a very superficial understanding that we have of the disease. Of course, we had a very superficial treatment either, surgery and steroids. I feel like that was... Right. <laughs> so I think incremental <laughs> progress has been made, <laughs> for sure. Um, well, I mean, again, I think that shows how the field is definitely moving forward. And mm -hmm. I think we've all agreed from the last podcast, it's exciting to have other options that potentially would have uh, less side effects or potentially reduced surgeries. But um, also that real world cohorts are still needed. Oh, clearly, yeah. <laughs> clearly. There's so much for us to learn. Uh, Marin, I reviewed this article on Algae Watch, but I, I actually that. would love to have your perspective on this because I thought <laughs> this is immensely interesting on cockroach immunotherapy. Right. So I actually thought that this issue of Allergy Watch was so interesting. I thought there were a bunch of great articles that were chosen. I chose cockroach immunotherapy just so that we could go outside the box a little bit. Um, but And I'm going to apologize in advance for how many times I'll be talking about cockroach fecal matter and cockroach bodies. While I was making notes for the podcast, my skin was just crawling the whole time. And after going over it a few times, I got desensitized a little bit. No pun intended. Uh -huh, <laughs> I get it. Actually, you, but, I'm going to interrupt you. What is your perception of cockroach allergy when you were in Texas versus Atlanta? I just love your perspective. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Just... Uh, I don't have one. Uh, no, the reason, no, this is why I'm asking, because um, I am very Midwest, uh -huh. and I also was in New York City. New York City, I saw tons mm -hmm. of cockroach. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were, you know, yeah. we, I was in that classic Manhattan apartment. Suburbs of Cleveland, Cincinnati, Louisville, never saw one. I come to Atlanta, oh boy, oh. <laughs> there's cockroaches everywhere. And most interestingly, when I talk to people, they'll, I would ask them in the room, do you have cockroach exposure in your home? Oh no, we don't have cockroaches. You know, we get those water bugs that come and leave. 
Oh, for Pete's sake, that's a cockroach. I mean, why wouldn't you just say that's a cockroach? Uh, anyways, that's my side comment. I'm sorry to go off your... <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, but... Really, Atlanta, quite frankly, that's where Tom Platts Mills, years ago, when he was doing his studies on asthma in children, uh, in the inner city children, who are in generally mm-hmm. multiple family dwellings and in the hot, humid uh, weather here in Atlanta, they found that cockroach in the environment was very, very uh, significant in terms of causing children to have flare-ups and uh, emergency room visits for their asthma. So the presence of cockroach in their home or in their residence apartment uh, you know, was very, very important. That, and Tom Platts Mills was really one of the first ones who sort of described, described mm-hmm. that years ago. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. go ahead. Tell us so, about the antigens. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, go ahead. So as Stan was just saying, Cockroach is a major sensitizer in asthma patients, and in some cohorts, cockroach sensitization has an even greater effect on asthma morbidity than dust mite or pets. But cockroach immunotherapy is certainly not optimized, and there are two main barriers to desensitization. The first being that allergen preparations in the United States are still non-standardized extracts. And secondly, sensitized patients have very complex IgE binding patterns to multiple cockroach allergens. Until recently, five cockroach allergens were recognized, Blagi 1, 2, 4, 5, and 7. Blagi 2, 1, and 5 were until recently considered potential major allergens, but in a recent cohort, none of these five cockroach allergens were immunodominant in a U.S. population. And in this cohort that was previously published of more than 100 adults, about half of them were sensitized to Blagi 2, a third to Blagi 5. But overall, the binding patterns to these five different allergens were essentially unique for each individual. And cumulatively, they did not even account for all of the IgE reactivity against cockroach extracts. And in more than a third of cockroach-sensitized subjects, these five allergens were not recognized indicating that additional cockroach allergens existed. So in the past 10 years, new allergens have emerged and are now classified into 13 groups, and the current study extended the analysis of IgE reactivity to three additional cockroach allergens from groups 6, 9, and 11. So this study investigated the variability in allergen content among German cockroach extracts made from different sources and using different protocols and the complexity of the host immune response patterns to cockroach. They also compared the in vitro potency of a group of cockroach extracts for IgE reactivity in a cohort of 23 adults that were sensitized to cockroach recruited from three centers. And the investigators studied the relative potency of 12 different non-standardized extracts. Nine were purchased from Greer and made from whole cockroach bodies. Two were made from fecal matter, and one from frass, which I think is also made from fecal matter. And the expression of eight recombinant cockroach allergens were quantified in these extracts. What they found was that allergen extracts used for diagnostics and immunotherapy for cockroach are highly variable in their individual allergenic protein content. The three allergens that are measured in cockroach extracts, that is BLAG1, 2, and 5, which are the only ones for which immunoassays are currently available, 
also showed significant variability in allergen content, and this ranged from 5 to 10-fold among commercial extracts. And these large variations in allergen contents of these 12 extracts were related to the source of the extracts, depending on whether fecal matter was used or whole body extracts were used. For example, fecal extracts had the highest amounts of blood G1 and blood G2. And these are allergens that are known to be excreted in the feces. And low amounts of blood G5, which is an enzyme expressed in the fat of the cockroach body. On the other hand, ext extracts that were made from whole body contained less blood G1 and blood G2, but greater relative amounts of blood G5. Also, all 12 extracts were very different in terms of in vitro potencies based on inhibition assays using five individual sera as references. And the differences in the relative extract potencies were up to more than three orders of magnitude. The approach that they used in the study is different from the one used by the US FDA, which measures biologic potencies using skin test titration or the ideal 50 method. But this has also not correlated with direct measurements of blood G1, 2, or 5 levels. The second thing that they looked at in the study was the host immune response in 23 subjects. And again, the anti-cockroach IgE binding to the eight major allergens displayed significant differences between subjects. And some subjects had no IgE to the panel of these tested allergens and presumably due to reactivity to other unidentified allergens. The findings found in this study replicate those of others which show inconsistent content of allergenic components in cockroach extracts, highly significant differences for blood G1, blood G2, and blood G5 in commercially available extracts using natural cockroach sources, and further, correlation between these allergens with the overall biologic activity of extracts has not been shown. And in addition, studies have constantly replicated relatively lower potency of extracts that are commercially available when compared with reference standards. Also, the potency of these extracts is dependent not only on the allergen content of the extract itself, but also the subject sensitization profile and the heterogeneity of Blagi-specific IgE repertoires in individual subjects. And both of these are relevant when you select potent extracts to be used for immunotherapy. And the bottom line is that this unique sort of reactivity profile for each patient and the lack of dominant allergens in this population with cockroach allergy just makes it especially challenging to select appropriate extracts for immunotherapy that contain rele relevant allergens to each subject. Uh, this paper made me pretty depressed when I read it because we know how important cockroach algae is, especially mm -hmm. for inner city asthma. I just told you there's cockroaches all over this city and I'm <laughs> feeling, okay, I can help patients, I can fix that. Mm -hmm. I get a study like that telling me that the patient may not be sensitized to what's in my extract, and what's in the extract could be variable depending on what's in it and the derivation and the manufacturer and so on. And this mismatch really calls into question if I'm really helping mm -hmm. patients and I'd like to think I'm making patients better, 
but this sort of makes me reconsider, especially if I'm making choices on compatibility and how much space I have in the vial. Should cockroach be a priority for me? I've actually taken a pause after this study. I'm not mm -hmm. sure how other people have felt about cockroach mm -hmm. immunotherapy. Well, part of the problem with cockroach antigen uh, extract is it's so proteolytic. So it really, when you combine it with other antigens, you have to be careful what you combine it with. It probably dust mite is hardy enough, so it wouldn't be that much of a problem. But I'm, you know, some of those pollen antigens, you know, probably wouldn't survive, survive so to speak, <laughs> uh, with the cockroach in there as well. Uh, but I think that you could take a bigger uh, view of this study, and and you know, we're starting to talk about personalized medicine and. You know, uh, what, what are the other uh, uh, antigens, let's say, the component antigens for some of our pollens, you know, or the uh, animal extracts that we use? So uh, I, this is, I think, just sort of a scratching the surface of what may be next in that we may have more component diagnostics right. and potentially component therapeutics. Hopefully, we can find an effect in that trial they're doing with mm -hmm. InterCity Asthma Consortium that would at least reassure me since they're actually going for it and really trying to address this issue, especially since there is studies out there about the challenges of integrated pest management as the major intervention. There's right. been some right. challenges with integrated pest management. So if this doesn't work, we're in trouble with inner city <laughs> asthma. We're going to have to think of some other methods. In the meantime, Maybe I should be actually collecting some of the cockroaches in my home and, you know, mixing up some. I'm just kidding. I, I only buy commercial That's the extracts. the way the old allergists used to do it. They used to take dust samples out of the patient's home and make up extract preparation. That was a long time ago, even before my time. <laughs> okay. Full disclosure, I am not doing that. Okay. Okay, let's move on. All right. So the last article we're going to review today was summarized by Vivian Hernandez Trujillo, and she titled her summary, Is Avoidance Truly the Best Patients with Eosinophilic Esophagitis? So this is a very interesting case series of two cases of patients who had eosinophilic esophagitis where the management strategy was food avoidance and alerts us to the fact that potentially that could lead to a loss of tolerance. So the first case that they report, and this is coming out of South Carolina, is a 65-year-old woman. She had dysphagia. She had multiple esophageal dilations. She had a peak eosinophil count of 210 per high-powered field, uh, despite omeprazole. BID, 40 milligrams BID. And so with a wheat test that was a four millimeter, four millimeter wheel and a wheat IG of 8.6, they did empiric wheat and milk elimination. And we know, we know that adult population wheat is very relevant for adult EOE. On re-op biopsy, that diet strategy was successful. She went to zero eosinophils per high power field. But 16 months later, after that grain elimination, after ingesting a hamburger with a seedless bun, 20 minutes later, she had palmar itching, flushing, 
it uh, lip swelling, strider, and hypotension, anaphylaxis. And three months post-reaction, the wheel flare reaction, four minimal wheel, and the wheat IG of 7.4 was similar. So that's case one. Case two, 13-year-old boy, two-year history of dysphagia, two food impactions. Again, high-dose proton pump inhibitor has 100 per high-power field, changes consistent with eosinophilic esophagitis, has positive skin testing to milk, egg, wheat, and soy, peanuts, nuts, legumes, and meats. They did six food elimination diet plus meat elimination, and there was a decrease in EOS to 40 per high-power field. Then they did budesonide, but then liberalized the diet when they started budesonide. Now, they had a concern about reintroduction because of that previous case, so they actually did a soy challenge, and this patient had soy tolerance, but an in-office challenge 40 minutes after ingesting 240 mLs of soy milk over 105 minutes, the child developed generalized urticaria that, and received epinephrine and cetirizine. Eight weeks later, when they did the skin test, uh, the child had a similar wheel. It was 6 millimeters instead of 7 millimeters. And again, that child never had an immediate type 1 reaction just like the other patient. So... Summarizing the literature beforehand, there has been reports of oral pharyngeal edema after 2.5 years of milk avoidance, where a patient actually went from a normal milk test to a 10 millimeter wheel. There was another case report of hives vomiting respiratory symptoms after one year of milk avoidance with a conversion from zero to 24 millimeter wheel for milk. And then there was a toddler, I'm sorry, I apologize, a 15 year old who had milk allergy as a toddler, then developed tolerance, but then four months after avoidance of milk, developed angioedema vomiting dyspia uh, after accidental exposure. So the list goes on and on, but essentially there may be patients at risk who have sensitization to food and that food is eliminated from the diet and although this may be an intervention for delayed hypersensitivity like eosinophilic esophagitis, there appears to be some risk of loss of tolerance due to prolonged avoidance. And, you know, we don't exactly know how a lot of adult allergies develop, but we wonder if someone doesn't eat a food very often mm -hmm. and have existing sensitization, is that the setup? And if we're trying to help patients with one problem but increase the risk of another problem, it does bring pause to that intervention. It, certainly, this is, doesn't seem to be a very common problem, so it does require further research. But um, I'm curious how up to date you have approached food elimination eosinophilic esophagitis. Um, Stan, uh, what's your thoughts on the diet option for controlling EOE in your practice? Well, it's very frustrating for me uh, because we, I haven't found that much success with the, uh, uh, first of all, it's very difficult for patients to have a six-food elimination or even a two-food elimination diet sometimes. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to figure out exactly what, you know, what to suggest that they eliminate because sometimes our tests are not 
Uh, I, I wonder whether our tests are really that clinically relevant. Um, it, you know, it's just hard to, it's a, it's a very complex problem. I, I think we have a lot to learn uh, in the diagnosis and the care of the triggers of uh, EOE. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with Stan. I think <clears throat> my approach to EOE has continued to change through the years, and I think it's just been recognized that the role of the allergist is constantly shrinking. And I often resort to swallowed steroids as opposed to any sort of diagnostic testing for foods or elimination diets. Um, this series to me was a little shocking in the sense that you have a 65-year-old um, who's developed a new onset food allergy, which is sort of analogous to one of the papers that we discussed in the last episodes on food avoidance and atopic dermatitis. And the fact that people can become sensitized and develop a hy type 1 hypersensitivity reaction within as little as three, minutes fo uh, three months following avoidance um, so just cutting out the food for a few months is sufficient for a loss of tolerance. But I think, I think the biggest, uh, bottom line for me was that we have to be concerned about this, even in adults, apparently. And now it's, it's not that black and white anymore. And it sort of, sort of brings to mind, um, a recent paper actually from Jackie in practice where now bariatric surgery is a risk factor for food reactions in patients with pollen food allergy syndrome. And they, instead of just developing oral allergy syndromes, they develop full-blown anaphylaxis. So I think it's just one of those things where we have to be cognizant that adults can develop like new onset true type 1 hypersensitivity reactions. Uh, again, I'm just going to toss in my hat just like everyone else and say that I definitely have shifted more toward medical therapy for eosophagitis, but... I, my primary reason is non-adherence for something that's not life-threatening. If we think about the goal of therapy, I, I do know that a lot of parents would love to treat something without medicine. Mm -hmm. But what is the quality of life of that patient or child if food is so socially important? And I just bring that to their attention. And I do have parents who would rather do diet, but I think when you have them consider that aspect, of how important food is and the enjoyment of food and the quality of life of food. And then we talk about steroid side effects. I'm not trying to talk them into it. I just wanted to give them all the information. I think a lot of parents would either go with that initially or at least have pause to go straight to, oh, well, I'm not, kids not getting any medicine. There are these subtle effects of food avoidance that Socially, we've seen with true food allergy, but I think also creep into eosinophil esophagitis. Mm -hmm. And now I'm even more motivated to, mm -hmm. to add this <laughs> other portion to it. Uh, this is the end of our episode. I really appreciate you participating with us. Uh, please rate our podcast on iTunes. I think we were up to six. So uh, that's exciting for us. And uh, Seven, Jerry. Seven. Not that I'm counting. Or anything, oh, <laughs> Well, I haven't seen it lately, but thanks, Merrick. <laughs> we really, really would love your feedback, especially if you have corrections or suggestions. That email address, if you'd like to participate, is allergytalkoneword at acaai.org. So we will break for now and catch us on episode five. We'll, 
we'll be talking about part two of this July-August episode. Have a great day, everyone. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Dr. Lee was on an advisory board for Tiva. Dr. Kalangarda has received consulting fees from AstraZeneca, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for AZBI Shire and has done research for AIMUN, DBV, Shire, and Regeneron.